just uh, joining us, uh, if this is your first time back to church in a while, welcome. If you are visiting, a special welcome to you as well. And uh, we have just completed a year-long uh, series on the book of Acts. We started in September and just finished last week. And so the obvious question is, okay, what are we doing for the summer? Well, I'm pulling out a series that I uh, did a decade ago, and kind of reworking it, retooling it, <coughs> and it's uh, looking at novels, and uh, novels that have big themes of faith and lots of touch points with the good news of the gospel, and uh, looking at those stories. And so uh, today we're going to look at the novel Byzantium by Stephen Lougheed, and then uh, next week... If you are in town, please join us down at Transfer Beach. And I have prayed and prayed and prayed, so it's not going to rain next Sunday. <coughs> um, it's a great time. We have two people getting baptized down at the beach. It's an amazing service. The sun's shining, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. What we're encouraging you to do is if you're joining us next week, we're going to encourage everyone to bring a little picnic lunch. And now once the service is over... Just stay, and uh, we can sit around Transfer Beach. Uh, all the beverages are going to be provided for you, but uh, bring a, a picnic and grab some people, sit together, and enjoy the afternoon together. On the 17th, uh, we're going to look at the classic novel East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And then on the 24th, the uh, beloved South African novel Cry the Beloved Country uh, by Alan Patton. And last, on uh, July 31st, we're going to do Paradise Lost. A lot of people consider that the greatest English epic ever uh, composed. Uh, so we're going to look at those this summer. And then I have uh, three weeks of holidays. So we have some guest speakers. Uh, Mike Mahorter from Fellowship Pacific. Wonderful guy. Been a pastor for 40 plus years. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor. You'll love Mike. And then Stephen Phillips is a young fellow in uh, Nanaimo. And he is planting a new kind of church, a micro-church. Uh, so he's going to come and tell us about that and preach for us. And then on the 21st, Krista Penner from Fellowship Pacific. If you have never heard Krista speak, she is just a joy. She is so much fun. She's a bubble of life and has a great sense of humor. You'll love her. And then on August 28th, our own Pastor Fernando will be preaching to us. And then finally, on the September long weekend, we're going to combine with Warmland Church down in Crofton. So we're all going to go down to Crofton, and in the summer, they do their services outside under a big white tent. So we're going to join them and uh, kind of have a fun uh, September long weekend together. So that's the plan for the summer. And uh, all right, now we're going to dive in. Now, if you are a reader, there is incredible enjoyment in grabbing your favorite novel, finding a lounge chair, maybe down at the beach, maybe in your backyard, maybe have a little ice-cold beverage beside you. That is just kind of summer reading heaven, if you are a reader. And I'm hoping by the end of this series, you're going to love these books. If you don't already own them, uh, you will buy them. Now, if you are not a reader, you would do almost anything else than have to sit and read a novel. Come on, it's summer. I should be doing a billion things. Uh, you are going to love this series as well because here's the good news. I've already read the novel for you. And uh, I give you the condensed version and it's even got pictures. It's a win. 
All right. So as I mentioned, we are tackling the novel Byzantium by Stephen Lougheed. Uh, This remains one of my absolute all-time favorite novels uh, because it does several things so well. Stephen Lougheed's an incredibly descriptive writer. As you read and you get into it, you're amazed. You just kind of get transported into that time period. Second of all, he's an incredible action writer. Uh, There's some battle scenes and action and danger and peril, and uh, he's really gripping. He's a page-turner. And then the third thing that this novel does incredibly well is it tackles the problem of sin and evil and suffering in our world in just a brilliant way. Now, what sets Stephen Lougheed apart as an author is his incredible, meticulous research. In fact, he started out with a series. He kind of rewrote King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And so he's an American, grew up in Kentucky, and then traveled to England and uh, in 1986, and he fell in love with the place, and he has lived there ever since. Uh, raised his uh, two sons, uh, Ross and Drake, along with his wife, Alice. And uh, one of the series that really kind of got his name out in front of the public was he went back and re-researched the Robin Hood legend. And uh, he did two and a half years of research, and he poured over every scholarly article, every manuscript. He went to all the museums, the John Rylands Museum in London, and he found the little scraps from, you know, a thousand years ago of the Robin Hood legend. And uh, he was just fascinated with it, did all this work, and in the end came to a really interesting conclusion. He said, Robin Hood is not an English story, it's a Welsh story. And the, the English co-opted it over time. And so he went back and rewrote and, uh, those three novels, Hood, Scarlet, and Tuck. And there, it's a really gritty retelling. It's amazing. There's no, nobody running around in green little tights in this series. Uh, he's just an incredible author. All right, that gives you an idea about Stephen Lougheed. Now on to the novel Byzantium. Our central character is Aidan Krenick. And he is an Irish monk, better known in history as St. Aidan. And uh, St. Aidan was a real guy. You can actually go to Istanbul in Turkey today, uh, which was called Constantinople in his day. And there is a special memorial to him. That's where his bones lie at rest. And uh, there's a, a grave marker, and it's got his name there, all that kind of stuff. And then in Scandinavia, there are four churches that he planted and uh, amongst the Vikings. And there are still those church markers there today. You can go see them. As well as in Ireland, there's a memorial to him. Now, one of the other things that features prominently in this novel is called the Book of Kells. And uh, that is an amazing translation Uh, of the Bible into Latin, and it was done by the Irish monks, and uh, it is just gorgeous. Each page has these incredible illuminations, these these, uh, artistic renderings. Uh, The cover was originally encrusted with jewels. Uh, It's just a masterwork. Took these monks years and years and years, and when they finally finished it, they decided it needed to go to Constantinople, to the heart of the Byzantine Empire at the time as an incredible gift. 
Um, so, and then finally, you'll hear as the story goes on that Aiden did, in fact, go to Scandinavia and plant four churches. So all of those are historical facts. Uh, and this novel is historical fiction, so it takes the facts, and then Stephen Lougheed brilliantly fills in the parts that we don't know uh, from history and does an incredible job. So just before we dive in, I want to ask a simple question. Why do we as human beings love stories? Why do we love novels and, and movies or, or even just listening to someone tell us their life story? Why does it grip us so much? And I think uh, author John Eldridge captures it well. This is what he says. Christianity, in its true form, tells us that there is an author and that he is good. The essence, actually, of all that is good and beautiful and true, for he is the source of all these things. It tells us that he has set our hearts longings within us. He has made us to live in an epic. There is a villain in the story who hates our hearts and wants to destroy us. It calls us up into a story that is truer and deeper than any other and assures us that there we will find the meaning of our lives. That's why we love stories, because our life story, we sense in a deep way in our hearts, connects to God's big story. We talked about that last week. If you were here, we talked about God's big story, starting with creation, and then the fall of humankind when we turned our backs on God, and then redemption, and finally at recreation, God's big story that he's writing. And, and we sense inside that our stories fit into that. And that's why we love stories so much. All right, novels in particular tend to follow kind of a, a plot line. And so there's all the parts, as you can see. You start with the setting. You've got to describe where we are, who are we talking about, who are the characters. And then there's rising action. It builds, and then there's a climax usually, falling action, and then finally to the denouement. And that's French word just simply means the wrap-up. And that's where all the threads get tied together. All right, so the setting of this novel of Byzantium. So it's the Middle Ages, and it's the Irish monastery. In, uh, in Gaelic, it was Sananus Narig, uh, but commonly called Kells. And uh, you can actually go to Ireland today, and there's a town called Kells, and there's the remains of the monastery there. Uh, isn't it cool in Canada, we think something that's like 150 years old is like amazing. There, they're like 150 years, that was last week. Uh, we, we got ruins from, you know, 1,500 years ago, it was incredible. So, as I said, the monks at this monastery are faithfully working on this book of Kells, and they're, they're in the, what they call the scriptorium, and they would go in and, and write and copy and do those incredible illustrations and it represents years and years of work. And finally it's completed and they decide, they meet together, they pray. And finally the bishop decides, you know what? We're going to send three of you on a quest. And we're going to send you all the way to Constantinople. And you're going to take this incredible Bible and give it to the emperor of, the Byzant of Byzantium as a gift. And so Aidan is chosen along with a few other monks and uh, they set out in a ship, and they cross the Irish Sea. They come around the bottom 
of what today is England, and then across the English Channel over to uh, Brittany, northern France. And uh, on the way, they are attacked by a Viking ship. And a uh, battle ensues. They, they kind of fight. Several of the monks are injured. And one of the Vikings gets knocked out and lands in their ship. And they manage to get away. They get over to northern France. And uh, once made it there, they are helped by the locals. And the Britons on the Normandy coast hated the Vikings. They, and so they see this prisoner and they say, well, let's kill him right away. And monk Aidan kind of intervenes and says, no, no, no. Like, out of good Christian love, we're not going to kill him. In fact, he goes and gets a loaf of bread and he gives it to the prisoner. And that one little act of Christian love and kindness actually has long-reaching far effects and consequences. And so in the middle of the night, the Vikings want their guy back, so they attack. And a few of the monks are killed, but most are simply kind of knocked out and left behind. And uh, we find out that the, the Viking that was briefly captured, his name is Gunnar. And he shows kindness to Aiden the monk by not killing him. He just grabs his club and bops him on the head, knocks him out. And uh, they take him off to what is now Denmark. And he awakes to find himself a prisoner on the Viking ship. He's pretty scared and he gets taken all the way to Denmark. And uh, we find out that the Book of Kells was undamaged and some of the monks still had it. And so once they recover, uh, they set out on the quest again. But poor Aiden is stuck in Denmark with the Vikings. Now, Aiden kind of settles into life there. He's taken to Gunnar's farm as his slave, and he learns the language. He gets to know his wife, uh, Karen, and his son, Helmut. And then uh, he finally meets the king of the various Viking tribes. This is such a great name. The guy's name is Harold the Bull Roarer. Not awesome. We should have kept that tradition going. Like, could be like Rod, our worship leader, could be like the bear growler. Wouldn't that be awesome? You could address each other. I think that's amazing. Okay, so as, as Aiden learns about uh, the language, he's able to communicate with all the Vikings, and they, they grill him on where were you going and what was your quest? And he says, well, we're going to Constantinople. And they had heard of this place. It was kind of almost mythical in their imagination but they knew it was full of gold and silver. And so these Vikings, in their hilarious overconfidence, decide they're going to load up four ships and they're going to go besiege Constantinople. And so they got uh, four ships, 30 warriors in each one, and they set out. And they don't go around through the Atlantic, through the Mediterranean. They actually take the rivers of Europe and end up in the Black Sea. And you can get to Constantinople that way. Well, when they finally arrive, they realize, wow, this wasn't a great plan. They get to the harbor, and the chain alone across the harbor to protect it from attacks is so massive, there's no way even through. So they quickly kind of regroup and reform, and they're like, well, if we can't attack the place, maybe we can work for them. And so they finally meet the emperor, and they tell him what's going on. And uh, he says, actually, every single year as we try to send trade ships through the Black Sea, they always get attacked by pirates. 
I will hire you guys as Viking warriors to protect my trade ships. And so they work out a price, and the Vikings think that's pretty good. They're getting paid. And so off they go. But what they don't know is the emperor's right-hand man, his name is Komish Nikos, and he's a total schmuck. He betrays them. And uh, so when they finally get uh, to what we consider today uh, northern Turkey, they land in this city, and the ruler of the city, the governor, uh, he receives a note. He says, when the trade ships come, I want you to go take everyone to this other city. And Aiden gets to read the note, and he's like, something's wrong, something's suspicious about this. Uh, but away they go. So the, the local Persian ruler takes 100 of his warriors, he's got the 120 Vikings, and they set off overland to this city. Well, they were certainly betrayed by Comus Nikos, and uh, they ended up being attacked by a thousand Armenian warriors. And I'll give you just a little glimpse of the battle scene. Here we go. Harold rallied his men, now numbering fewer than 80. I reckoned and renewed the fight. Bellowing like a mad bull, he called on Odin to witness his valor. Then he and his remaining Karlar rushed to meet the new threat with such ferocity that the enemy was momentarily staggered. The onrushing ranks hailed, uh, halted, were in some places thrown into confusion as howling sea wolves grapped, gripped by the bloodlust of battle drove headlong into them. The sound of the clash was deafening. Men screaming, cursing, crying as they fought and died. Oh, it was a dreadful slaughter. The Danes fought with astonishing courage, time and time again, performing startling acts of savage and wonderful daring. I saw Hanefi, arrogant, prideful warrior that he was, fight without a weapon when the broken stub of his sword was struck from his hand. Rather than retreat to find another blade, he darted forth, grabbed his foe, lifted him high, and threw the man into a knot of advancing enemy. Four men went down, and Hanefi leapt upon them and slew them all with their spears. It's a little intense, for sure, uh, the action scene. So despite this heroic kind of final stand, Aiden and his Viking friends are obviously overcome, and they are consigned to work in a silver mine, and it is just horrible. They're given almost no food, very little water, back-breaking labor. They have to go from the mines out into the sun. They all get sunburnt. It's just horrific. And during this process of all this suffering, Monk Aiden's faith really falters. It, his faith really breaks under the weight of so much suffering. And this is probably one of the key passages of the entire novel. And Aiden kind of articulates the problem of suffering and pain that so many people struggle with and feel in our world. He writes, A deep melancholy settled in my heart and filled me with gloom. At first I considered that my Dolores feelings derived from some failure on my part. Though try as I might, I could not determine what this failing might be. Then it came to me that it was God who had failed, not me. I had done all in my power to remain a faithful servant. I had borne all my misfortunes with as much courage and grace as I possessed, and had even tried to advance the knowledge of his lordship in the world. This, I believe, was what cast the shadow over my shoulder. 
I had been willing to die, had faced the day of death without fear or regret, but I did not die. Strange to say, this brought neither relief nor joy, but seemed instead a cruel deception. For if my life was not required, why did God allow me to dream so? And if he had decided to spare my life, why had he forced me to endure the slow torment of imminent death without granting me the comfort I would have gained from knowing my life was no longer at hazard? None of this made sense to me, no matter how I thought about it. God always came out seeming churlish and small and wholly unworthy of my devotion. I've been willing to give, indeed had been given the utmost of my ability, heart and mind and soul to him. I had dedicated the whole of my life to God, and he had not so much as acknowledged the gift. Far from it, he had ignored it completely. The grand promises of Holy Scripture were empty words, mere sounds in the wind. Worse, they were lies. Evildoers prospered, prayers of the righteous went unanswered, The God-fearing man was humiliated before the world. No one was saved, even the smallest torment. Good people were made to suffer injustice, disease, violence, and death. No heavenly power ever intervened, nor so much as mitigated the distress. The people of God cried to heaven for a deliverance, but heaven might as well have been a tomb. What a powerful description of the problem of suffering and evil. And they've done numerous polls over the years and, and asked, you know, the population at large, what are the blocks, what are the things that keep you from believing in God? And the problem of evil and suffering always seems to come out as the number one reason. And that's the strength of narrative fiction. It can kind of take us out of our everyday and allow us to see a question from a new angle, a different way of looking at things. And Aiden here articulates it so well. And, and so many people would sympathize with his words. They simply cannot swallow the fact that there is so much suffering and evil and hurt in the world, and yet, supposedly, this world was created and is ruled over sovereignly by a loving and all-powerful God. Well, fortunately, the Bible itself does not shy away from the question, but begins to answer it in the most profound way. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, this is Jesus on the cross. He's very quickly approaching his death, and this is what happens. It says at noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what Jesus is actually quoting on the cross comes from Psalm 22. And this is the original Psalm 22. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. 
All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for the garment. Now what's absolutely incredible is we understand Jesus' cry from the cross and we realize that the original was Psalm 22 and and Jesus quotes the scripture to capture exactly the torment and suffering he is going through. It's amazing to realize that those words of Psalm 22 were penned almost a thousand years before Jesus was on the cross. They were penned by David, King David, the great psalm writer. And the description in Psalm 22 is almost like an eyewitness description of being at a Roman crucifixion. It says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. That's exactly what happens when Jesus was nailed to the cross. It says, people stare and gloat over me. Well, not every death is observed by a big crowd, but a crucifixion certainly is. And then it even gives the detail that it says, they divide my clothes and cast lots for my garment. And we know that that happened from the Gospels. The soldiers knelt down, grabbed their dice and cast lots and, and gambled to see who would get Jesus' cloak. That's a perfect description of what happened to Jesus a thousand years before it ever occurred. But what about the cry of Jesus itself? This is what uh, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says about the significance of Jesus' cry on the cross. I love this quote. He says, As a blasphemer, Jesus was rejected by the guardians of his people's law. As a rebel, he was crucified by the Romans. But finally and most profoundly, he died as one rejected by his God and his Father. Raymond Brown, the the Roman Catholic scholar, adds this. He says, Jesus has been abandoned by his disciples, mocked by all who have come to the cross. Darkness has covered the earth. There is nothing that shows God acting on Jesus' side. How appropriate that Jesus feels forsaken. His why is that of someone who has plumbed the depths of the abyss and feels enveloped by the power of darkness. Jesus is not questioning the existence of God or the power of God to do something about what is happening. He is questioning the silence of his Father. Well, if you know the gospel story, you know that after Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, his body was laid in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and evil. But what's super significant for us this morning is that before the glory of Sunday, before the glory of the resurrection, Jesus took us into the darkness of Good Friday. Jesus' cry has the truth, has the, has the ring of truth and realism to it. And you know, if the gospel message was only happy and smiling and happy clappy all the time and didn't acknowledge that there is so much evil and suffering and pain in the world, then it wouldn't ultimately be good news. All right, now we pick up our narrative of Byzantium again. So at one point, Aiden and Gunnar, who are now friends, discover that a handful of Aiden's fellow monks were also betrayed, and they're stuck in the silver mine. And they find them, and Aiden is, is happy to see his fellow monks, and they reunite. 
And then Aiden and Gunnar run afoul of the wicked mine overseer, and he publicly beats them within an inch of their lives. And this confirms Aiden's sense that God cares nothing for the troubles of people. The beating and torture is finally stopped by a Persian lord, and Aiden is taken back to the palace and nursed back to health. This begins the falling action of the novel. And once Aiden's recovered and he's well enough, he, he asks to see the Persian lord and he says, I'm absolutely convinced that the emperor's right-hand man, Comos Nikos, is behind this betrayal and strife. The Persian lord agrees, he investigates, he gets to the bottom of the plot. And finally, he and Aiden and a bunch of his warriors are able to go to the silver mine and rescue the monks and all of the Vikings who are still alive. Once they're rescued, they go back to Constantinople and they trap this guy, Komos Nikos, in his schemes and they obtain the everlasting favor of the emperor. And while Aiden slowly lost his faith during all of this adventure, the Vikings actually grew in faith. They looked at it and said, we've never been rescued so many times. They could see the hand of God in these events. They didn't go into it expecting an easy time. So suffering actually had the opposite effect on them. It simply removed their pride and their self-reliance, leaving behind a seed of faith. Well, Jesus' cry from the cross turns out to be the foundational piece of the Christian response to the problem of suffering and evil in the world. And monk Aiden is about to learn an incredible lesson from his Viking friends. And they turn out to be the most unlikely source of biblical wisdom. All right, I want to read that Jesus cry to you one more time. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this and they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. You know, at the center of what the Bible has to tell us is the moment when God came to earth. Christians believe that God is a trinity. He is three persons who are one in their essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father and the Spirit send the Son, who is born of a virgin, grew up to be the most unique person who's ever lived. Fully God, fully man, 100% of each. And if that amazing centerpiece of history had never occurred, then you know what? We as human beings, we would have a legitimate case to kind of shake our fist at heaven and say, you don't know what it's like down here. You've never suffered like we have. If you think of all the horrible things that happen in our world, people are killed in wars, people are being killed in Ukraine right now, Russians, Ukrainians, Mothers and fathers in Africa or Haiti hold the bodies of their children who starved to death or died from disease. A mother in North America attends the funeral of her son who was killed in gang violence. 
Right here in Ladysmith, we've had many tragedies. Kids taking their own lives, people dying of drug overdoses. And if Jesus had not come in the flesh, God incarnate would have to admit that we have a legitimate right to complain. You don't know what it's like down here. But that is not the case. The amazing thing is Jesus knows. Again, our friend Jürgen Moltmann is helpful. He says, It has been pointed out that to suffer and be rejected are not identical. Suffering can be celebrated and admired. It can arouse our passion. But to be rejected takes away the dignity from suffering, makes it dishonorable. Suffering, both to suffer and be rejected, signify the cross. Through his own abandonment by God, the crucified Christ brings God to those who are abandoned. Through his suffering, he brings salvation to those who suffer. Through his death, he brings eternal life to those who are dying. And therefore, the tempted, rejected, suffering, and dying Christ came to be the center of the religion of the oppressed. That's a really fancy way of saying Jesus gets it. He fully understands to the depth of human experience what it's like to suffer in this life. And he finally takes away that ability for us to yell at God and say, you don't know what it's like, because he does. He lived it. He suffered it even to the point of death. To every hurting parent who has lost a child, the father says, I understand and I know. To every person who has suffered physical pain and torture, Jesus says, I have felt that pain too. To every person that's been betrayed and rejected, Jesus says, I've been there. Jesus stretches his arms wide on the cross and says to everyone on planet earth, I know because I experienced the worst this world has to offer. All right. Now you're saying, Darren, that's pretty great. You've taken us down to the bottom. I need a little hope here. Where's the hope? Well, one of the most beautiful passages that talks about the hope of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 3 to 5. Again, this was done about 750 years, 800 years before Jesus was crucified, and yet it plays out like Isaiah was standing there. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What an absolutely beautiful passage. You know, a lot of people propose answers to the problems of the world. Some people think that a military buildup and and weapons and armies are the only way to force through a solution to the world's problems. Jesus actually does the opposite. He doesn't take lives, he gives his own life. Now, sometimes aggression needs to be stopped. Clearly, we can see that in Ukraine right now. But on the whole, military buildup won't ultimately solve all of the world's problems. 
Some people believe education is what's going to solve everything in our world. But Jesus actually says it runs deeper than just our heads. The real problem is in our hearts. And what Jesus came to do is not just offer information, but actually transformation. Some people believe that that life is so messed up and it's so hard and difficult that we might as well just resort to drugs or alcohol to try and dull the pain. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, it's through my wounds, my punishment, that you are healed. You're made whole again. You can live life with an internal peace that no substance can ever give you. And Jesus declares that he is the ultimate solution for all the evil in our world. When, some, when one individual chooses to give up their greed and their pride and their hate and follow Jesus, you know what Jesus does? Gives them a fresh, brand new start. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for all of the human, evil humanity had ever done. All of the punishment he took on himself. And the Father laid all of that on him. That moment was also the most important, necessary, and hope-filled. In that moment, it seemed like evil had won. But Jesus pulled off the greatest reversal in all of history. It was only in his death that ultimate victory could be achieved. The willing sacrifice of the innocent was the only way to pay. In the first half of the Bible, the image of a spotless lamb is set up. The symbol of a perfect person, free from sin, was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus takes the place of the Lamb, but far supersedes it for all people in all times and places. I want to read that Jürgen Moltmann quote one last time. Through his own abandonment by God, the crucified Christ brings God to those who are abandoned by God. Through his suffering, he brings salvation to those who suffer. Through his death, he brings eternal life to those who are dying. And therefore, the tempted, rejected, suffering, and dying Christ comes to be, came to be the center of the religion of the oppressed. That is the good news that Jesus offers to our world. Jesus' death is ultimately a model for us in how to overcome evil. Not to fight evil with evil methods, but rather to defeat it by doing the will of the Father. Well, we finally made it to the denouement. Simply a French word means tie up all the loose ends. Now, because our Viking friends were in the employment of the emperor, when they finally make it back to Constantinople, they're like, hey, we did this, pay up. And, uh, and so he says, not only am I going to pay you, I'm going to compensate you for your wages and the loss of your dead compatriots. Now, Viking Harold turns out to be a master negotiator. And so when they finally leave, they've got a huge chest of gold coins. And they actually brought the silver, some silver ore out of the mine with them in sacks. Even though they were next to death, they're like, we're not leaving the silver behind. So when they finally make it back to Denmark, these guys are easily the wealthiest Vikings around. And because they've got all these resources, they buy a ship, they hire uh, a, a captain, and they send Aidan and his fellow monks back to Ireland. 
And all of a sudden, Aiden finds himself after this colossal adventure back where he started, back in the safety of his monastery. Everything's lush and green as Ireland is. And uh, everything seems good, except his heart is dead within him. He has completely lost his faith. And one day they see a Viking ship come into the harbor. And all the monks are scared. They're like, oh no, the Vikings are attacking. They're like, Aiden, you can speak their language. You go negotiate with them. And so he goes down and of course it's not an attack. It's his Viking friends. Turns out to be Harold and Gunnar and a host of Vikings. And what Aiden discovers is that on that trip back from Constantinople all the way to Denmark, Gunnar actually shared that it was Christ who had saved them. And he converts the rest of his fellow Vikings. They get back to to Denmark and all he will talk about is we need to start a church here. And so when the ice broke up, they said, we got to go find Aiden. And they go all the way to Ireland And this always gets me emotional. This is the high point of the entire narrative. The conversation between Aiden, who has now completely lost his faith, and the Viking who has come to faith. And this is such a beautiful and profound statement. I'm going to do my best. Try to think of non-sad things. All right. So we knew that his wife's name was Karen and his son was Helmut. Karen would have liked this. He said, Helmut too. It is too bad they could not come with you, I replied. But Gunnar, I cannot. The look of sadness on Gunnar's broad face halted me. They died while I was a Viking, he said. Ilva said it was a bad winter and the fever got them and they died. First Helmut and then Karen. Many others died as well. It was very bad, I think. He paused, remembering his good wife, then added, but everyone dies, and I will see her again in heaven. Hey, uh, despair casts its dark cloak over me. And I said, you see how unreliable this God is, and yet you still want to build a church. Truly, Gunnar, you are better off without it. Gunnar regarded me in disbelief. How can you speak so, Aiden, especially after all we have seen? It is because of all we have seen that I speak as I do, I retorted. God cares nothing for us. Pray if it makes you feel better. Do good if it pleases you. But God remains unmoved and unconcerned either way. Gunnar was quiet for a moment, gazing at the little stone chapel. The people of Scania pray to many gods who neither hear nor care, Gunnar said. But I remember the day you told me about Jesu, who came to live among the fisher folk and was nailed to a tree by the scalds and the Romans hung him up to die. And I remember thinking this hanging God is unlike any of the others. This God suffers too, just like his people. I remember also that you told me he was a God of love and not revenge so that anyone who calls on his name can join him in his great feasting hall. I ask you, now does Odin do this for those who worship him? Does Thor suffer with us? That This is the great glory of our faith, I murmured. 
thinking of Ruad's words to me, but changing them to reflect Gunnar's sentiment that Christ suffers with us and through his suffering draws us near to himself. Just so, agreed Gunnar Eagler. You are a wise man, Aiden. I knew you would understand. This is most important, I think. You find this comforting? Hey, uh, he said. Do you remember when the mine overseer was going to kill us? There we were, our bodies broken, our skin blackened by the sun. How hot it was. Remember? Sure, it is not a thing a man easily forgets. While I was thinking this very thing, I was thinking, I am going to die. But Jesu also died, so he knows how it is with me. And I was thinking, would he know me when I came to him? Yes, sitting in his hall, he will sail, see me sail into the bay. And he will run down to meet me on the shore. Everyone dies, Gunnar had said. All flesh is grass, said Kadok. What did you expect, Aiden? Did you really think that Christ would blunt the spear points, deflect the lash, cause the chains to melt away when they touched your skin? Did you expect to walk in sunlight and not feel the heat? Or to go without water and not grow thirsty? Did you think that all the hatred would turn to brotherly love the moment you strode into view? Did you think both storms and tempers would calm because of the tonsure on your head? Did you believe that God would shield you forever from the hurt and pain of this sin-ridden world? That you would be spared the injustice and strife others were forced to endure? That disease would no longer afflict you? That you would live forever untouched by the tribulations of common humanity? Fool! All these things Christ suffered and more. Aiden, you have been blind. You have beheld the truth, stared long upon it, yet failed to perceive so much as the smallest glimpse of all that was shown you. Sure, this is the heart of the great mystery that God became man, shouldering the weight of suffering, so that in a final day none could say, Who are you to judge the world? What do you know of injustice? What do you know of torture, sickness, poverty? How dare you call yourself a righteous God? What do you know of death? He knows, Aiden. He knows. Gunnar Warhammer, untutored barbarian that he was, had discerned this central truth, while I, for all my monkish learning, had failed to grasp it. In Gunnar, this understanding had kindled hope and faith, even as my lack of understanding had brought me to hopelessness. Oh, but with the coming of the dawn on Resurrection Day, Holy Easter, my vision had been revived, and the restoring of the dream, I was myself restored. Well, it has a beautiful ending, and the Viking convinced Aiden to go back to Scandinavia with them, and he actually goes back and plants four amazing churches in what we would call today Norway and Sweden and Denmark, and you can go see those churches today. And I think that a simple novel can sometimes bring fresh light to what we read in Scripture. I hope it's a blessing to you. Grant, please come and pray for us.